Have you ever stopped and wondered how a tree became a string instrument? Just how much do you pay attention to detail? Not just in real life, but on screens too. And how big a difference does ultra-high definition really make? This time, we delve into the details of Ultra HD. We discover how Ultra HD content is filmed, edited, broadcast, and watched by audiences across the globe. Welcome to Satellite Stories. I'm your host, Christina Smith-Meyer, and this time we'll be visiting the Bavarian Alps. We've talked about big tellies and eye-watering pixel rates before on the podcast, but this time we'd like to paint a picture, quite literally, about what goes into the making of Ultra HD content. Alongside learning from how and what, we'll be hearing stories of those involved in the making of one of our demo films in 8K. From guests to technical experts, we're going to share how we made it and the story behind the story, if you know what I mean. But first, we need to set the scene with where Ultra HD came to fruition. So sit back as we crunch some numbers and slip a few pages back in our diaries to the year 2001. This is the year that Apple launched iTunes and the iPod, Wikipedia began, and Microsoft released the Xbox and Windows XP. Back then, researchers began building prototypes and testing monitor display capabilities for Ultra HD, but it took a good while until they really came to market. Even then, there were cameras able to film in Ultra HD, but while ambition was high, the quality was often not high enough, and the file sizes were mega, and the sheer size of the things meant this Ultra HD thing was only for play, not really for everyday broadcasting. Let's fast forward to 2012. NHK, in conjunction with Shizuoka University, has developed an ultra-high-definition imaging system that outputs 33-megapixel video at 120 frames per second. Japanese broadcasting company NHK showed the world's first ultra-high-definition shoulder-mounted camera enabling cinematographers around the world to capture ultra-HD content in a wide variety of shooting situations. And it is also the world's first to support the full specifications of the ultra-high-definition standard. And eventually, in August 2012, Ultra HD was officially approved as a standard by the International Telecommunication Union, standardizing both 4K and 8K resolution. Welcome to a defining moment in the history of television broadcasting. This is the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, here in Geneva, Switzerland. And engineers have gathered here from all around the world to decide what happens to television in future. 
It's called Ultra High Definition Television, UHD TV. Now, it's not something for tomorrow, but you can be sure it's something that our children will enjoy. In years to come, our TVs became bigger and thinner. Video game producers jumped on the opportunity for more immersive, better quality pictures. And the desire for better quality among the sports fans continued to grow when the 2014 FIFA World Cup arrived. This competition was the first to be shot entirely in 4K Ultra HD by Sony. The European Broadcasting Union broadcast this competition in Ultra HD to audiences in North America, Latin America, Europe, and Asia via SES's NSS7 and SES6 satellites. Football's a great sport for 4K. It's all about giving the viewer a really engaging experience. With 4K, you can sit on those big, expansive wide shots for a lot longer and they can really understand and enjoy the geography of the game. Now, it finally seemed that getting access to Ultra HD content was an option for the ordinary people, like you and I, not just for researchers and the rich. It's still, I guess, regarded as quite an expensive technology, but like all new emerging technologies, lots of work to be done with it, prices will come down and there will be solutions found. I see the future definitely that in time all sport will be covered in 4K. I think it's the natural progression. There are some limiting factors with lenses, but once that's overcome, there's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't move forward to 4K. Not long after the World Cup in Brazil, the rock band Linkin Park performed at the Berlin's O2 World Arena. And that gig was broadcast live in Ultra HD via Astra at our 19.2 degrees east orbital slot. Using something called the HEVC codec, 50 frames per second and a 10 bits per channel color depth. Two years later, ballet. The Le Cossaire Ballet was broadcast in Ultra HD live from the Vienna State Opera. This time the program was produced by SES in collaboration with the European Culture Channel, Arti. It was transmitted free to air, available to anyone with reception from 19.2 degrees east and an Ultra HD screen equipped with an HEVC decoder. It took a while for the uptake of Ultra HD content to really flourish. In fact, it's still taking time. There are many reasons why, but mostly in that someone is always catching up. Either the TV manufacturers, the broadcasters, the film and TV producers, or the satellite industry. And of course, cost, speed, and creativity all come into play. So with this rather crude flyby look at Ultra HD's history, 
What can we come to expect for its future? Will it become the norm? Or will it remain a high-priced special occasion service every now and again? We'll come back to the nitty-gritty of what Ultra HD is a little later on. But first, I promised to take you to the Bavarian Alps and take you on a film set using cutting-edge 4K camera technology. First, I want to introduce you to our directors of photography, who will help you see what they see, and offer a guide into the impact filming in Ultra HD can have, perhaps without many of us even realizing. Okay, well, I'm Andrea. I'm a cinematographer from Italy. Uh, I work mostly in commercials, corporate videos, TV show, music videos. As a director of photography, when you start to do a framing, when you put the camera in some position, then you have to start to shoot for, for instance, a commercial, you know, food, for instance, rice. So you start to build up your framing, and then you start to put the lights. And, uh, and when you have the monitor, now you see all the details. And they are so important, like flare, reflections, you know, uh, water, uh, anything that it's part of the frame become more important because you see it. It's very simple. For instance, a commercial, where in 30 or 15 or 10 seconds you have to show you know, the best as you can. You want the viewer have the best experience. So you know that everybody at home, sooner or later, is gonna gonna be able to see Ultra HD, 4K, in the future 8K, so they, there is no chance to make mistakes. And uh, it's a challenge, but it's a pleasure, because, uh, you know, the, the, the technology gives you the possibility to do this. My name's Sam Measure. I work for CVP and I'm a technical consultant dealing with everything from you know tripods all the way through to uh, cinema cameras and lenses. So the jump from SD to HD was pretty huge to begin with anyway. It was almost like the wall was being pulled off people's eyes. Uh, everything was, uh, was becoming clear. And it's similar with that jump from HD to UHD, whether that be 4K or 8K. Uh, it's the level of detail that's being resolved in the image, not necessarily sharpness, but, but clarity. So what you're getting from ultra high definition compared to just high definition is a, is a, a greater sense of reality. So it's not just a resolution jump, it's a gain in contrast, color and resolution, as well as frame rate as well. All of those things together is a, is a heightened sense of realness. Here we have a phantom camera, 4K camera that can shoot up to a thousand frames a second in ultra high definition. Where you'll see the benefits of this camera uh, are in high dynamic range shots such as the snow-capped mountains where you're seeing bright highlights uh, in conjunction with deep shadows of the forest in the foreground. Not only being able to capture that detail in the bright and dark areas but also higher detail higher level of detail because of the resolution. You just don't really get that with other high frame rate cinema cameras. 
digital equipment's come leaps and bounds over the years and it's it's not really that hard to capture in high resolution anymore because compression's got so much better. People have been shooting on this equipment for over a decade and it's just seeing it all in a new light. High dynamic range on the capture side is a camera's ability to see uh, information in the darkest dark as well as the lightest light at the same time in the same image. Whereas Previously, we were sending that to, to screens and monitors that weren't able to display everything that was being captured. And now, uh, with HDR technology and screens, we're actually able to see the scenes as they should have been, as they were captured and as they were lit, all of the detail there. In recent years as well, now satellites able to handle UHD, so it's, it's not gonna be as much of a problem for broadcasting this around the world. It's an amazingly exciting time to be in the broadcast industry because the amount of kit that's out there that's enabling uh, anyone to really shoot amazing content uh, in UHD is, is like no other time that we've seen in the industry. There are cameras out there that cost a thousand pounds that will deliver a really good 4K HDR image. Previously, when I first joined the industry, anything like that would have been hundred thousand pounds plus. Thanks to Andrea and Sam. We'll hear from a colorist a little later on too. But first, let me pick up on something Sam mentioned there. HDR. You see, in the simplest explanation we can muster, Ultra HD is a high-quality video format with a picture resolution of 3840 times 2160 pixels at 50 frames per second. That's four times the number of HDTV. That means you get to watch TV shows and movies with greater clarity and detail. You can also watch some of the shows in something called HDR. It stands for High Dynamic Range. HDR improves the color and contrast of your picture, so colors look even more vibrant and you're able to see more detail in dark images. These are terms we'll come back to throughout this episode, but if you're at home now, or have your smartphone in your hand, chances are at some point you've probably taken a photo with or watched a piece of content in Ultra HD or with HDR recently. That wasn't always the case though. You see, as Sam referenced, broadcasting in Ultra HD is expensive. The file sizes are massive. And at first, many of our broadcast partners weren't sure about it since the sales of Ultra HD TVs were slow, mostly because they were so expensive. Which is a shame, as plenty of content was being filmed in Ultra HD, it's just that there really wasn't much of an opportunity for the average TV viewer to watch it. SES was different from the offset though. Just because there wasn't a huge demand didn't mean we held back. In fact, we were the first satellite operator to broadcast a global Ultra HD TV channel. We're always happy to support the pioneers. Let me give you an example. A few years ago, we began broadcasting Ultra HD content for our long-standing French customers, Canal Plus. We should remember that five years ago, only one in five of the population of France had fibre. 
So to make this work, Canal Plus needed the support of a satellite operator since sharing these huge whopping files via an IP link wasn't going to be an option. QSES. Together we went on to develop an end-to-end solution which led to broadcasting the Champions League final in Ultra HD back in June 2015. Making this happen wasn't easy though. It meant upgrading all of Canal Plus's broadcasting facilities, changing its playout system, investing heavily in 4K Ultra HD content and developing a completely new decoder. With that in mind, you can see why TakeUp has been slow with broadcasters. But now, with Tokyo Olympics, Paralympics, Euros 2020, we are seeing an increase in uptake. More broadcasters are using satellite to share great Ultra HD content live. It's not just sports either. In the last year, the BBC have offered Ultra HD options for Doctor Who fans, Blue Planet, and even the Queen's Christmas speech. I bet the Queen had to give the palace an extra spruce up for that kind of detail. Now, we've opened up a whole new world of opportunity for everyday TV viewers. Question is, are you noticing the difference? Mastering the detail, the name of this episode, a phrase we've used deliberately. Because in real life, our senses allow us to take in every detail. Smell, taste, touch, sound, and sight. So why shouldn't we, world leaders in satellite technology, enable our filmmakers to recreate the detail of the stories they're sharing with their audiences worldwide. You may want to close your eyes for this next part, as long as you're not driving, of course. Take in the sounds that unfold around you. Listen to their story, their accents, and their passion. And perhaps an ultra HD picture in your mind of what you think you'd be seeing if you were walking alongside them. I'll be back to share more about the film afterwards. But in the meantime, enjoy your trip to a small Bavarian town in the northern foothills of the Alps. This is where it all begins. Good air, high altitude, nice tree, long stem without any knots in it, good smell the long journey of a violin. This is a beautiful tree we just chopped down. It was probably growing here for 150 years and uh, we are choosing it to take it on the journey to make a violin that will one day, or a cello, that will be one day be played in some big city in a concert hall by a great young star or old star. <laughs> yeah, it's a very emotional feeling to have um, this relationship to that wood. It's, uh, yeah, I feel very lucky to be involved with something like this between nature 
and the concert halls of the world. Florian, there is one tree I want to show you. We just yeah. recently cut that. Uh -huh. And I know you want to have this kind of stripe in the wood. Uh -huh. So what do you think? My name is Andreas Parler. This site is located close to Mittenwald. It's in Bavaria, South Germany. And we are here because I'm looking for a tree matching the needs of a violin maker. Yeah, it's a little bit too narrow here near the center for me. I understand. I mm -hmm. more so what can I see here? I find a beach, I see spruce, I see a fir. Maybe there is what you need for the backside of a violin is maple. Where is it? I can see it over there. And the altitude is something like 1200, 1250 meters. So here it starts going up in the mountains. Here it starts where the nice spruce and uh, maple trees grow. I need very narrow rings, no branches, no damage to the tree. Only one out of 100 trees approximately does fit the uh, needs for violin making. Oh yeah, very crisp sound. Excellent and yep. really in, well in a split. So these are split. Today is a quiet day. It's late in summer, turning into autumn, winter. We have had some snow last night already, which is um, a good sign that the time is right for cutting trees because the sap is down, the tree starts to pre preparing for the winter time. And yeah, that's the time where I have to go into the forest and look for the nice trees. The wood which is needed for making violins, it really has a, a long process behind them. It has, first it has to grow for something like 250 years, it's staying here in the forest. Somebody has to, to find it, identify it, oh this should become a violin rather than a, a roof or a beam for a roof. It's cut down, it's coming to our sawmill. We put it underwater in a pond. We have it sitting there for maybe one year, up to two years even. And after that it comes back into the, the sawmill. We cut it into one meter pieces. It's sitting outside, it's dried only naturally, no artificial drying. So this is another two years. Then it comes inside, we have to prepare it, we have to plane it. We have to see which maker is it somewhere in the world. Then the violin maker takes it and there is the next 250, 300 years once it's converted in a violin. It's the second life of the tree, which finally ends up is being played in a royal festival hall or somewhere out in the world. We cut along the split. You can see the small lines here, yeah, exactly. so which is the resin really, channel. Yeah. So that's here. Florian Leonhardt comes to us. He's one of the most respected and knowledgeable persons in the violin making field. He does both making and has a very interesting shop with the nicest violins, which he's dealing with. And for me, it's very intense discussing wood with him because I always I always can learn what what does he need for his copies for his violins and yeah it's a it's good fun and on the other side it's interesting see all the details he wants to he wants to see and meet in the wood so it's always a benefit for both sides here we are now in the violin making workshop so an instrument making you have lots of 
hundreds of small details that you should adhere to. That combination of all of them, from the choice of the wood to the choice of the resins for the varnish, the treatment of the ground of the instrument, the choice of creation of, of a shape of arching and an outline, that's the fishing, the width of, of the sea bouts and the placing of the F-holes and also the functionality of the scroll and the peg box. All those small elements together form maybe perfection. And in some ways it, it could be compared to, for example, filmmaking, where you have to get the lighting right, you have to get the subject, the perspective, the colors, so many details that you have to do right to make it actually look better because if you look at photographs of amateurs versus uh, uh, professionals there's a big difference and that's the same here in instrument making you have to really look at everything professionally and it's so hidden in the background that the result looks so innocent so here i it's now adjusted when you finish an instrument and somebody puts the bow on it first time it's an absolute tingling experience. So the, the, your, your, your skin feels it, not just the ears or the brain. An incredible feeling because you've been working for like three to four months on something to perfect it. And you have chosen some ancient piece of wood. You made the varnish, you cooked the varnish and you applied it and then you let it dry and you give it a finish and then you put the strings on finally and it starts to ring it's like a baby born it's an incredible experience Thanks to Andreas and Florian for giving us a taste of their worlds. And by the way, you can watch their walks through the woods and in the workshops on our website right now. Head to ses.com and search Mastering the Detail of Ultra HD. One of the things that really struck me during the making of this film was how Ultra HD really opens the opportunity for greater clarity and reality for viewers. This cutting-edge technology is allowing more of us to feel as if we were there in the forest, seeing the trees disappear into the water. But it's not all on the directors and the cameras to make it happen. It's also down to the magic work of the colorists who get to shape our vision in post-production. Fortunately for you, we captured a few words from our colorist working on this project. Michelle Court shares what difference Ultra HD and high dynamic range makes to a great film. I'm a colourist within the film and TV industry. I grade films that have been shot in a raw format and we manipulate the colours to make them look beautiful and into the vibrant pictures that people end up seeing on their TVs and on the cinema screens. 
but I'm here now in a grading suite. So we start with the raw footage, which is flat and washed out and not appealing to look at. Uh, we then start with adding a bit of contrast and saturation to test how far we can push everything, check the exposure, is nothing's clipping off or losing detail, especially in the highlights and shadow area. Um, I then look to bring out specific details and colour tones, um, like for example checking that the green trees are the right shade of green and the autumnal colours are a nice contrast. For example in this we've got lots of blues in the shadows and then there's a warmer highlight in the tree leaves and things. Um, and making sure your whites are whites, your blacks are blacks. That's how I'd look to start grading a piece. So on this film, the beautiful slow motion was shot anywhere between 100 and 500 frames per second, which has allowed for us to visually see everything, that all the small movements and details that are happening that in real life would just happen in a blink of an eye. The film starts with the wide mountain shots, which are beautiful, and there's the warmth autumnal feel within the trees, which also nicely offsets the blueness in the mountains, and especially shown by the birds that are flying over the top. So towards the end of the film, there's a section about them playing the instruments once they've been made. There's a lovely shot of a close-up of the bow. Without UHD, we wouldn't see the texture in the wood as clearly. In the water shots as well, we wouldn't get the texture of the water flying through the air. In HD, that would be a lot softer and a lot less visually pleasing. It is about storytelling and bringing the emotion across to the viewer to make sure that they are experiencing the story the way it is intended. UHD really helps these kind of shots because they will allow you to see more textures within the leaves, in the snow, into the rocks, into the clouds even. It's much closer to what the human eye is able to see, which then we can bring to life and make it visually appealing for the audience. And so there ends our trip to Bavaria and the journey of discovering the possibilities behind Ultra HD. We hope by listening to this episode, we've given you some food for thought. Whether watching the latest box set with a TV dinner or enjoying a box office night out with a big screen. Will you notice the lights and the darks a little more on the screen? Will you appreciate the detail behind the magic of Ultra HD? Thanks for listening. Do make sure you follow our series so you're notified the moment the next episode is released. And for more about what we do, visit ses.com. <laughs>